Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part one of week five, titled Disciples, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Uh, of course, we've only scratched the surface of Matthew and, and uh, Luke. Uh, and so, as always, let's review so we can put today's theme into context. Uh, so we began with the birth stories of Jesus and the baptism stories of Jesus and how those anticipate the central teaching of Jesus, which Matthew and Luke encapsulate in Sermons, the Sermon on the Plain for Luke, the Sermon on the Mount for Matthew. And we saw that one of the themes that distinguish those sermons are for Matthew, the theme of judgment, for Luke, the theme of mercy. And we saw that that same uh, distribution of themes can also be found in the parables, the unique parables of Matthew and of Luke, which also emphasize judgment on the one hand, mercy on the other. That's where we finished last time. Now, one of the things that came out very clearly in the whole understanding of what the parables are and what they are for that Matthew and Luke inherit from Mark and expand upon is this idea that uh, the purpose of the parables is formation, the formation of disciples. And so it's fitting that we move today on to the presentation of Jesus' disciples in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Now, Matthew and Luke's understanding of the disciples, and here I'm going to be mainly focusing on the twelve. So I'm really talking about the apostles here. How do Mark, Matthew, and Luke treat the apostles? But that's relevant to the larger question of discipleship, because aren't the twelve supposed to be models for us? Isn't it they who hand on what Jesus revealed to us so that their formation as disciples can become our formation. Uh, and that is indeed how Matthew and Luke see it. You know, all of the things we take for granted about the Twelve come from Matthew and Luke. It's in Matthew that Peter is identified as the rock upon which I will build this church. Likewise, it's in Matthew that Jesus promises to all the Twelve that they will judge the tribes of Israel sitting on thrones. So again, the theme of judgment, they themselves become agents of judgment or will become agents of judgment. So Matthew and Luke have full confidence in the Twelve to be models of discipleship. Why is that? Um, in part, Matthew and Luke emphasize the competency of the Twelve because Mark seems to call it into question again and again. So here is another theme where understanding the Markan background of Matthew and Luke's stories helps us to understand why those stories are the way they are. And here, Matthew and Luke really are, I think, engaging in a rather heated dispute with Mark because Mark uh, has a much more radical notion of discipleship uh, which, although he never, um, he never casts out the twelve, he never uh, 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 
says they're beyond redemption. In fact, the concluding uh, conversation of Mark's gospel is the young man in the tomb saying to the women, go and tell the twelve, even Peter. So even Peter, who denied Jesus three times, is indeed to be rehabilitated. So there's no question that Mark um, keeps them within the fold. But when we see how Mark treats the twelve, we come to the shocking realization that the twelve the apostles in Mark are not models of discipleship. They're sort of models of what not to do as disciples. When we think of our image of the twelve, we get it from Matthew and Luke's attempts to rehabilitate the twelve. Matthew and Luke are both very interested in stories that Mark tells about the twelve so that they can transform those stories, which for Mark are critical stories, into learning moments where the twelve acquire new insight and new understanding, acquire a depth of discipleship that Mark does not grant them. Now, why Mark does this, excuse me, let me turn this off. Why Mark does this is a great question. Not only why he does it, but also why the church chose to canonize Mark in spite of the fact that he does this. I think if we explain a bit about what Mark says about disciples in general and about the Twelve in particular, we can answer that question. And then having set the stage, we'll then see what Matthew and Luke do with Mark's stories of the Twelve, where they transform them into models of discipleship. Or perhaps a historical way of putting it would be they retrieve the Twelve's historical status as the pillars of the faith, which Mark has somehow called into question. So how does Mark treat the twelve? Well, we know that Jesus calls them to be with him, to share in his mission. We know that they go out and perform this mission of exorcism, healing, proclamation, even raising the dead in Matthew's version. They do everything Jesus does. Uh, And then they begin to, um, they begin to, to, to falter. They begin to not understand Jesus' prompts for them. And this actually begins and is set up, as it were, in the parables, in the parable of the sower. So let's review the parable of the sower for a moment. The parable of the sower was one of the two major parables in Mark's Gospels, which Matthew and Luke take over. Uh, in the parable of the sower, the sower sows the word. Right? So the, the sower would at least include Jesus, if not John the Baptist, and anyone else who is proclaiming the gospel. But the sower sows the word, which is the seed, which falls on the different kinds of ground, and different kinds of people respond in different ways. And uh, if we remember, there's those who totally reject the message of the kingdom because Satan takes it away from them. There's those who uh, embrace it uh, eagerly but quickly fall away when push comes to shove because they have no root in them. There's those who fall among the thorns, whose desire to respond to the message of the kingdom is choked by other concerns, desire for wealth, the, way, the, 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 the cares of the world, and so on. And then finally, there's the good earth, which hears, accepts the word, and becomes fruitful, yielding a uh, hundredfold. Um, so those are the four types of people. And again, we would, given the fact that, that Matthew and Luke dominate our understanding of the twelve, we would assume that the twelve fall into type four, those who hear, accept, and are fruitful. Um, Mark seems to differ on that. 
for Mark, the disciples are actually, for most of the time, type two, which is the rocky ground, the ground that has little soil in it, which I would argue is a wordplay on the name Peter. Petros in Greek, Petrodes, rocky ground. Now, why do I say that? Well, because the way Jesus describes those who represent rocky ground is he says they immediately received the word with joy, like the twelve do when he first calls them. But he says, when persecution and trouble arises on account of the word, they fall away. And that's exactly what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same verb, they fall away. You'll become deserters, he says. In, in Greek, it's you'll fall away. The same verb that describes that type of... They're the only group that matches that description in Mark's Gospel. Now, you could even make an argument that Peter at one point falls into, the, into type one, those that Satan takes the word away. Peter is the only character in Mark's Gospel whom Peter calls Satan. Uh, of course, that's momentary, but it's significant. Um, so we begin with them being given the secret of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom of God through the parables. Jesus explains it to them. Therefore, they are the insiders, not those who are on the outside who don't get it. But then things start to go wrong. As Jesus challenges them to do things, they don't understand what he's asking them to do, such as when he feeds the 5,000, he says, you feed them. Huh? You know, they don't get it. Um, Even after the feedings, we're told that they're going across the sea, right? They're going across the lake in the boat, and Jesus does a little miraculous walking on water to catch up with them and uh, tries to race them to the other side. And as he's passing them by, uh, they don't recognize him. And Mark, the narrator, then steps in and says, this is why they didn't recognize him, because they did not understand the meaning of Jesus' miracle that he had just performed. They did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Not a good thing. And to add injury to insult, as soon as they reach the other side of the lake, Everybody and his grandmother recognizes Jesus immediately, and they respond to him. So the, the 12 who are supposed to be the insiders are contrasted with everyone else negatively. Um, then there's another story when uh, Jesus is debating with the Pharisees and the scribes about the propriety of ritual handwashing. And uh, he says, nothing that comes inside a person from without can defile a person. It's the vices within us that defile us. So Peter says to him, or the disciples say, explain to us the parable again. Uh Uh-oh, that wasn't a parable. That was a clear statement. But Jesus said to those outside, everything comes in parables. Everything seems like a parable to them. So that we have these warning signs early in the story. And at the conclusion of Jesus's Galilean ministry, they're in the boat with him and they start discussing Uh, something. They discuss the fact that they have no bread in the boat. And Jesus uh, says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Um, And they don't understand what he's talking about. And so he quizzes them. He says, don't you understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you see but not perceive? Do you listen but not understand? That's exactly the description of those outside that Jesus gave back in in the parable. So by the time we reach the end of the Galilean ministry, things are looking grim. But then there's a moment of hope. It's right at this point that Jesus uh, asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. 
you are the Messiah. But then Satan takes away that word when Jesus says, this is what the Messiah is about to do. He's going to go and die. And Peter says, no. He rebukes him. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So even at that moment of grasping part of the answer, uh, even there, uh, Peter stumbles a bit. And then what is the entire story of the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem but one misrepresentation or misunderstanding of Jesus after another. Sometimes it's other people who are misrepresenting him, but usually it's the 12 or some members among them. And uh, finally, when we get to, uh, to Jerusalem, of course, then things go downhill um, when they're sleeping and they, uh, and they split, even though they say they won't, they, they fulfill that, that, that characterization of the seed falling on the rocky ground. Now, as I said, course they do have the chance of being rehabilitated that's the punchline of mark's gospel but we don't know whether they are in mark's gospel the original ending of mark ends with the women not going and telling the 12 that jesus has been raised from the dead the curtain closes and it raises a question did they get it did they ever get it so mark doesn't actually say they didn't get it in the end he simply leaves it as a question mark so why does Mark do this? Well, again, I don't, I don't know. Maybe he didn't like Peter that much. By tr- church tradition, Mark was Peter's secretary, and he wrote all this down. Um, if so, one wonders how he could write down things that Peter knew nothing about, according to the gospel, like when Jesus went away from the Twelve on a private mission. Uh, but, you know, given the benefit of the doubt, uh, if this is indeed coming from Peter, um, Mark surely has some problems with Peter. Now, in fact, if one reads all the traditions about Mark and Peter in the church historian Eusebius, who wrote in the 4th century AD and collected all these, there's actually quite a lot of debate. Uh, The connection between Peter and Mark is pretty clear, but was Peter happy when he read Mark's gospel? One person says, yes, he he approved of it. Another said he never saw it and he never would have approved of it. A third said he died before he found out about it. So even among the early church, there was this sense that there's tension between Mark's perspective and that of the, the broader church tradition about the centrality of the 12 apostles. Now, why does Mark do that again? Well, again, I can't answer historically, but I can give a suggestion in terms of, of the, 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 the narrative of Mark, what the narrative of Mark is supposed to do. Um, the narrative of Mark, I would suggest, is meant to draw attention to the responsibility of every baptized person to become a messenger, to become a disciple by being a messenger of the kingdom. The women did not tell, we're told. So who's left? Well, there's the young man in the tomb, but he already did his job. He told. Who's left? The readers of Mark's gospel. Those for whom Mark is writing, they are the ones addressed by this. So whatever Mark thinks of the twelve, his intent seems to be the formation of of the readers as potential disciples, as potential messengers of the word, with the 12 being the negative foil for that. And again, people always say, well, well, couldn't this be just Mark saying, well, the 12 are human just like we are, so they make mistakes? Well, of course they do. But the difference is that Mark puts in their place characters who do represent the ideal of discipleship in the parable of the sower. There are ideal characters in Mark, but they're not the Twelve, most of the time. The Twelve have their day in the sun where they go and proclaim and exercise and all that. But at the crucial moments, it is not the Twelve. When the Twelve stumble, 
there's someone else who appears. Um, there's at least two characters who fulfill the idea of the good disciple. There is the Gerasene demoniac. This is a character who is cleansed of demons by Jesus in chapter 5 of Mark, where he wants, like the twelve, to be with Jesus, to be amongst his inner circle, to do what he does. Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. Go to your own people, to your own household, and tell them all that the Lord has done for you. And he does. He's the only human character in Mark's gospel that Jesus says, go and tell. Every, the rest of the time, Jesus is telling people to shut up. So the, the Gerasene goes off and he proclaims to the entire Decapolis, the entire Gentile territory surrounding Galilee, and everyone hears him. And when Jesus visits that territory later on, they respond positively. So the man has heard, accepted, and borne fruit. He's multiplied the message. He has no name. He's a nameless cameo appearance, but he is so essential. Then at the end of Mark's gospel, there is the young man in the tomb, who is the only one clearly who knows the whole story, who can say with authority, he is risen, go and tell. He is a symbol of the baptized person, the baptized Christian. He appears in the garden after the twelve fall away. At that very instant, he appears. Now, he runs away too, but he runs away naked, just as the, newly, the, new, the, just as the candidate for the catechumen for baptism in the ancient church was stripped naked, leaving their own life behind them. He went down into the water, figuratively speaking. We don't see what happens to him during the Passion. But what is baptism according to Paul? Dying and rising with Christ. It's participating mysteriously in Christ's Passion. The young man appears at the beginning of the Passion and he appears at the end. And at the end, he is seated at the right hand, the right side of something. Now, earlier in the Gospel, James and John, the other two uh, members of the Twelve who don't get it, they say, we want to sit at your right and your left hand in your glory. We want to have positions of power and authority. Jesus says, I can't give it to you. It's only for those for whom it has been prepared. Well, guess what? Here's the one who's, who is, has been prepared for, and he proclaims. So those are the only two clear instances of ideal disciples, and they appear and disappear like that. You might even argue that the woman who anoints Jesus, the nameless woman who anoints Jesus for burial before his passion, whom he says, wherever the gospel is claimed, everything shall be, uh, this shall be, what she has done will be uh, praised in memory of me, right? Possibly. So she might be another one. She clearly knows what's going on, unlike the twelve. So that, that's how Mark lays it out. Now, that's kind of a long-winded introduction, but I think we need to grasp that picture, uh, that very negative picture and dispiriting picture of the Twelve, and to ask then, how did Matthew and Luke respond to it? What did they do in response? Let's take Matthew. So who are the Twelve in Matthew? Who are the disciples in Matthew? They are scribes trained for the kingdom. Remember, that was how Jesus described those who understand his parables. They're scribes trained for the kingdom. So Jesus is forming them to be competent witnesses of him. And he succeeds. And the reason why he succeeds is, firstly, whenever you have a story in Mark about the twelve not understanding, not getting it, Matthew preserves that story, but he changes it. 
he changes it from being a, a, a question of deficient understanding to being an issue of deficient and, and remediable faith. Remember that expression, O oh, you of little faith? Guess where that comes from? Matthew. Guess which parts of Matthew it comes from? Places where Mark is, is, is dumping on the 12. <laughs> Every place where Mark does that, or mo- many places, Matthew transforms the story from misunderstanding to they just don't have enough faith yet. Let's take the most popular example of that. This is in Matthew 14. This is the crossing of the sea, the first point in Mark where he said they did not understand their hearts were hardened. Well, first of all, Matthew cleanly deletes those, those lines about them not getting it. And what does he put in its place? They still don't recognize Jesus. They think he's a ghost. And Jesus jumps on board and says, it's I. Don't be afraid. But Peter says, actually, before he gets to the boat, uh, Peter says in Matthew's version, chapter, 24 verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 28, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So it's a test of Peter's faith, not his understanding. And as we know, he makes it part of the way, and then he sort of gets distracted by something. And what is Peter's, um, or what is Jesus' response? He reaches out, grabs him, and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And those in the boat were told, worshipped him, Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God, as though we needed to be made clear that they understand everything. They know exactly who he is, even before Peter's confession. So see how Mark has transformed the story. And he's he's made it edifying. How many times have you heard a homily on you of little faith? It's very, very powerful stuff. So Matthew thinks he can work with Mark here. Another way in which Matthew rehabilitates the twelve. In chapter 15 of Matthew, which is Mark, the sto- version of Mark's story about uh, Jesus uh, teaching on defilement and how you, it's not things from outside but inside that defile you. Um, in Mark, again, the disciples asked him, explain this parable to us, which is bad in Mark because it wasn't a parable. Guess what Matthew does? He slips a parable in there. A little, a short one, but he puts a parable in there. Uh, the disciples approached Jesus and said, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when, you, when they heard what you said? Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. Well, technically that's not a parable, but it works as a parable, right? And so Peter's, or the disciples' question becomes, a sensible question. It's not no longer a sign of their misunderstanding, but a sign that they are attuned to what's going on. And then continuing on, get another example here. In uh, Matthew 15, later on in Matthew 15, um, the key uh, story in Mark that provides the explanation, which the disciples don't get, about the meaning of the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, where Jesus quizzes them at the end and says, don't you get it yet? Are you without understanding? Well, the reason why they don't understand, among other things, is because they're not present at the crucial scene where Jesus has the meaning of these miracles explained to him. Jesus has the meaning of his own miracles explained to him by a woman, a Gentile woman. He says to this Gentile woman, uh, sorry, ma'am, I don't, I, don't work, I don't help dogs out, essentially. He insults her. She's a Gentile. She's unclean. 
She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the scraps that the children leave. There's, there's enough of the kingdom of God to go around for all of us, essentially, she's saying. Jesus says, you're right. And then he, he exercises the demon from her daughter. This is the explanation of the feeding stories, the leftovers. She says there's always leftovers. She gives the explanation, and guess what? The 12 are absent from this story. Mark consciously removes them from the story, and guess what Matthew does? He puts them right back there. They're in that scene. Um, which, by the way, is turned into a story of faith. The disciples have little faith. Jesus, in Matthew's version, answers, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you wish. It's not an argument, but it's an expression of faith for Matthew. Um, and then we go, we, we go along here further. In uh, chapter 16 which is, of Matthew, which is where we have the disciples in the boat with Jesus, Jesus saying, you don't understand. Um, here again, Matthew inserts into Mark's story, oh, you of little faith, don't you yet understand? And then Jesus explains to them what he means by this cryptic expression, the, the, uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, um, he says, how could you perceive, how could you not perceive that's what I was talking about? I was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. And then Matthew says, then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees. So again, even when they fail, it's a teaching moment and they quickly get it afterwards. Right? Uh, and then we have, uh, the, of course, the famous you are the rock upon which I will build my church, amplification of the confession of Peter. Uh, and then it continues on to uh, the transfiguration scene, which in Mark, Peter doesn't know what to do. And in Matthew, he's just afraid. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's okay. So it's, and the, and these are very subtle changes, and you really need to have sort of a coded text, you know, bold-facing what's unique to Matthew, crossing out what he crosses out from Mark to notice them. But it's also very conscious. You can see that in every story that is part of Mark's narrative of the downsliding of the disciples, Matthew uses it to lift them up again. And of course, at the end, they, they are fully formed. They are commissioned in chapter 28 of Matthew to go make disciples. So the disciples now fully formed make disciples. They succeed. It's very clear. So this is Matthew's story about the Twelve. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.